1796, the English medical doctor and scientist Edward Jenner discovered the necessary components and theories behind and developed a version of a smallpox vaccine, which was a revolutionary concept at the time, predicated on old folk knowledge and an observation that milkmaids who came down with a weaker version of the disease called cowpox, would tend not to catch the more serious and at times quite deadly smallpox. He subsequently formalized the process of exposing patients to dead or weakened versions of the disease, which gave their immune systems a chance to become familiar with it and build up immune defenses that then, when exposed to a full dose of smallpox later, would be primed to protect the owners of those immune systems from the worst effects of the disease. This is the same general concept that many modern vaccines utilize. And again, at the time, it was quite an important innovation, but also an innovation that was almost immediately exploited by criminals hoping to take advantage of the popularity of this vaccine. Existing snake oil salesmen pivoted their product promises to claim that their miracle oils cured and protected users from smallpox as well. But new fraudsters also emerged, claiming to provide their customers with legit, weakened smallpox components, when in reality, they were providing something else entirely. Usually something harmless, but something that would not offer the promised and desired protections, which could then, later, lead to harm, because those receiving these fake treatments would think they were protected and behave accordingly. The importance of this vaccine in the still-new United States was paramount, as, like most other places on the planet at that point in time, they were suffering through a smallpox pandemic that killed a whole lot of people, and which left those who survived seriously scarred and at times permanently injured or handicapped. And being a new nation, the government could not afford to be hobbled while the rest of the world moved forward, benefiting from this vaccine. This need to keep up led to the Vaccine Act of 1813, the first ever United States federal law to directly deal with pharmaceuticals and with the larger concept of consumer protection. There were a few small and often quite ineffective laws at the state and city level throughout the early United States that offered limited focused protections for certain types of food or medical treatments. Many of these were related to local industries of concern, so areas in which milk products were paramount to the local economy would have a couple of laws related to the purity or safety of milk, which was often bundled with laws related to competition that would favor local milk producers. 
In general, though, there weren't any real legal protections for consumers when it came to the food that they bought and the drugs and treatments they received. It was assumed that the market would work these sorts of things out. People would drive the bad actors who provided bread loaded up with sawdust to save money or who provided medical products that didn't work out of business by not buying their products, and that would be that. The development of this vaccine, though, and the clear benefits that it provided to individuals but also to societies that were then protected from this scourge of a disease led to some quick recalculations by the government, which then passed this act that gave them the power to distribute vaccines through the United States Postal Service, free of charge, to provide vaccines directly to U.S. citizens, and to determine and preserve the legitimacy and purity of vaccines that were available to the public. It also allowed the government to hire federal agents to make sure no one was selling fake vaccines, and who could themselves distribute legitimate vaccine doses when appropriate. This act was a pretty big deal, as the U.S. was founded upon the principle of a small federal government that generally didn't mess with the state government's rights to govern as they saw fit. It was also generally thought that the free market was the optimal way to sort out pretty much everything, and thus any government intervention, but especially federal countrywide government intervention, would mess with that ideal system of capitalistically emergent checks and balances. The Vaccine Act of 1813 only lasted a relatively short while. It lapsed in mid-1822, after a repeal the year before, triggered by an accidental outbreak of smallpox caused by an agent working under the auspices of the Vaccine Act who unintentionally distributed samples of full-on smallpox instead of samples of the vaccine. This was seen as an indication that the federal government could not be trusted to manage these sorts of on-the-ground issues, and the power to regulate vaccines was thus returned to the individual state governments in 1822. That initial toe-dip into consumer protections and government regulation of medical goods, though, informed a collection of state-level laws that, though quite diverse and patchwork, established the basis for the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act and the establishment of federal-level research facilities late in the 1800s, including the United States Department of Agriculture's Division of Chemistry, which was later renamed the Bureau of Chemistry. And this and similar facilities and divisions made this new Pure Food and Drug Act a feasible undertaking. That new act said that it was now illegal to transport food that had been adulterated, meaning food that had been altered in ways that either reduced quality or concealed, quote, damage or inferiority, end quote, that was tainted with additives that could harm people, or that made use of, quote, filthy, decomposed, or putrid, end quote, ingredients. This also applied to drugs and banned the misbranding of drugs, 
saying a substance was something it wasn't, or making provably false claims, and the responsibility for figuring out who was doing illegal things under these new tenets was handed to the Bureau of Chemistry. Judicial decisions in subsequent years reduced the Bureau of Chemistry's powers as they related to drugs, and a fracturing of these responsibilities between the Bureau of Chemistry and two new organizations further reduced their ability to target some of the worst perpetrators of crimes under this new law's auspices. Changes were made to the law to allow it to target purveyors of false medical claims in particular, but the judiciary reined those powers in as well. And as a consequence, though they could technically go after snake oil salesmen, they were generally unable to levy much in the way of punishment, which allowed fake or misrepresented cure-all substances to flourish despite their being illegal in theory in the United States. In 1927, the Bureau of Chemistry was reorganized into a new body called the Food, Drug, and Insecticide Organization, though that name was changed three years later to the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. A decade later, in the 1930s, the market was so loaded with outright fraudulent and harmful products that made incredible and false claims, and the journalism being published that reported upon these products was becoming so prominent that a proposed law, which had been juggled around by Congress for about five years without anyone being willing to take a firm stand on it, was finally passed. The Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act came into effect in 1938, and it gave the FDA sweeping new powers to help them regulate drugs in the United States. And importantly, it mandated a pre-market review of all such substances. So companies wanting to sell a new drug would have to submit that drug to the FDA first before they could legally put it on the market and the FDA would need to check it over to make sure that it worked, that it wasn't harmful, that it was what they said it was, and that the producers were not making false claims about it before they could legally sell it to anyone else. It also gave the FDA the power to inspect factories producing these sorts of goods, to set new regulatory standards for foods and medicines and medical procedures and cosmetics, and to set standards for drug labels. This act has been amended heavily in the years since, in some cases giving the agency more power, and in some cases heavily truncating those powers. But it remains central to the FDA's authority today and is the foundational structure of how the medical, food, cosmetic, and related industries are structured and practically function within the United States and as a consequence, throughout much of the world as of the early 21st century. What I'd like to talk about today is the FDA, its influence, and some of the controversies that surround it as of mid-2021. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. 
The article I'd like to start with today comes from Ars Technica, and it's entitled Three Experts Resign as FDA Advisors Over Approval of Alzheimer's Drug. In early June of 2021, the FDA approved an antibody drug called aducanumab, sold under the pharmaceutical brand name Adahelm. This drug was approved to treat Alzheimer's disease, which is a neurodegenerative condition that causes an estimated 60 to 70 percent of dementia cases and can cause primarily older people to have trouble remembering things, can cause a decrease in motivation, a significant change in mood and personality, and can lead to overall self-neglect. This confluence of issues eventually leads to a decrease in bodily function and death, and it's thought that a collection of genetic and environmental variables cause the onset of Alzheimer's, all of which seem to be associated with the breakdown of connections in the brain. One source of such connectivity breakdown is a brain-based substance called amyloid plaque, which, as the name implies, is a deposit of a type of protein within the brain's gray matter, and which is associated with the slowing and blocking of certain types of communication channels within the brain. It is not the only seeming source of such communication breakdowns, nor is it necessarily the most important or even a direct source of the symptoms that emerge as a consequence of Alzheimer's, but it is one component of the larger collection of brain changes that is used to identify Alzheimer's in patients, and it is thought to contribute to the degeneration of a patient's memory, thinking, and so on. Aducanumab targets a type of protein that can build up in our brains, and which is a primary cause of this type of plaque. It is the first treatment to target this type of protein in this way, and it is the first new treatment of any kind approved for Alzheimer's since 2003, which is pretty remarkable considering that this is a disease that affects tens of millions of people worldwide. An estimated 6% of all people over age 65 globally, and which leads to millions of deaths a year and a very substantial financial burden on individuals and their families, but also governments and agencies responsible for their citizenry's health care. And that last point is part of why this drug is both potentially exciting, but also incredibly controversial because the drug is expected to cost about $4,312 per infusion, and patients will require an infusion every four weeks, which means the annual cost of the drug per patient will be about $56,000. And that's $56,000 a year for potentially every single one of the, for instance, more than 6 million Americans who suffer from Alzheimer's, and a similar percentage of the population for folks in other countries around the world, a cost that, in the United States, would more than double the government's national health insurance program, Medicare's annual drug spending, raising it by something like $100 billion each year, in part because Medicare almost always covers FDA-approved drugs 
and treatments, and in part because the government has very limited ability to negotiate the costs of such drugs and treatments under its current mode of operation. So even though independent analysts have said that they believe this drug is actually worth somewhere between $2,500 and $8,300 a year based on fair market assessment of what was involved in its development and what is involved in its production and deployment, the U.S. and other governments with similar negotiating constraints will likely have to bite the bullet and just pay the asked-for $56,000 per patient per year instead. The number of people who are expected to live well past age 65 and who thus may require such a drug in the future is also expected to grow massively globally in the coming years. And that's great, but it also means that this figure is expected to grow fairly steadily, adding to the overall costs healthcare systems that accept it as a valid treatment will be expected to pay. Another important point of controversy here, though, is that this drug doesn't necessarily work, and the FDA seems to have embroiled itself in a decent-sized scandal by deciding to approve it in the first place. This drug's effect is predicated on a popular theory, the amyloid hypothesis, which refers to those proteins and the plaque buildup they can cause that I mentioned earlier. But it's not a sure thing that removing this plaque or preventing it from building up will actually do what we hope it will do, ameliorate the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Trials for this drug, which attempts to do exactly that to prevent the buildup and to eradicate some of that plaque, began in 2015, but they stopped in 2019 because the results never reached the threshold required to be able to claim clinical effectiveness, which is a fancy way of saying that it didn't seem like the drug worked based on the trials that they had done in those preceding years. The company behind the drug, Biogen, announced a few months later that after doing some additional data analysis of the results of those trials in partnership with the FDA, they noticed that some patients had seen better results than others, though those results were still mixed and inconclusive. They announced that they would try to get FDA approval based on those scattered, more positive results, even though their overall results were not promising. The FDA, for their part, seemed to support their pushing ahead with this, much to the surprise of pretty much everyone else who was knowledgeable enough of what was going on and what the data said to have an informed opinion about it. But a year later, in late 2020, the FDA's advisory panel voted to announce that the data provided by the company did not show that this drug was effective. And this was a nearly unanimous vote, with 10 of these advisors saying, yeah, this drug doesn't seem to work, none of them voting to say that it did work, and a mere one voter of that 11-person panel saying that they weren't sure. They also raised concerns about the side effects of this drug, which included things like brain swelling in about 40% of the patients who received the prescribed dose. The FDA almost always honors their advisory committee's recommendations, and with good reason, 
These advisors are chosen because they are the people most capable of knowing what is going on with any particular drug-related decision. They are experts. But in this case, the FDA announced a handful of months later that they would be granting approval to this drug, which resulted in a torrent of criticisms and condemnations and accusations of corruption and what the actual hell-style statements from experts around the world. Further confounding the medical world is that the FDA put essentially zero restrictions on how this drug could be administered, opening it up to be given to pretty much anyone with any kind of cognitive impairment, which is very unusual, and even more so in a case like this where the drug is so pricey and has not been shown to work. For their part, the FDA has justified their decision by basically saying that the potential benefit, even if that benefit hasn't been shown yet, is pressing enough that it is worth using an unusual pathway to approval for this drug on the small chance that it might actually prove effective at some point in the future. The possibility that it could clear away some of the plaque in some people, in other words, and that said plaque could end up being a component of Alzheimer's, is worth the risk of side effects, is worth the cost, and is worth the potential that it might not work for everyone or potentially almost everyone. Despite the agency's justifications, three experts on the aforementioned advisory panel have announced their resignation over the agency's decision to approve this drug, one of them noting in their resignation letter that the FDA said specifically that they would not be seeking approval based on the lesser approval metric that is rarely used that they ultimately ended up using, and that, quoting from that letter, quote, at our public meeting, concerns about trial data from one of the FDA's own reviewers were not given adequate time for discussion, and some of the questions FDA asked the committee to answer were worded in a way that seemed slanted to yield responses that would favor the drug's approval, end quote. It should be noted that the FDA, as part of their approval, is requiring Biogen to conduct another trial to determine the drug's efficacy and that it is possible the approval could be rescinded if it fails to show that the drug works once more. But Biogen has up to nine years to submit that next set of data to the FDA, and the drug can be prescribed and used as previously detailed at that $56,000 per person per year price until that point. And in a recent interview, Biogen's chief medical officer said that the company hasn't even started that next round of trials yet because they are focused on producing sellable doses and because the FDA didn't ask them to do anything else. They can go ahead and start selling the stuff now, so why would they spend that time and energy on a set of trials that could lead to results that then prevent them from selling their drug? There are other drugs on the market currently that help patients manage the symptoms of Alzheimer's, and many of these drugs have been in use since the mid-90s. Most of those existing drugs focus on particular stages of Alzheimer's. None of them are approved for 
mild cases of the disease, and all of them eventually lose their effectiveness, which, by the standards of many treatments for other diseases, isn't very potent to begin with. These drugs work, but none of them work particularly well. If a drug, like aducanumab, does turn out to be effective, even if it takes a while to prove that effectiveness, or for the results to show up in patients, that would be a very big win for the medical community, the company making the drug, and humanity as a whole. It could truly be a game-changer. The process by which this drug has been pushed through the system by the FDA, though, has industry experts wondering if the agency has been the victim of what's called regulatory capture. Basically, wondering if the agency is so influenced by the pharmaceutical and medical device industry that it can be pushed to approve things that don't work for the financial benefit of those companies. Though they're also wondering if the FDA is just so desperate to have something to offer for Alzheimer's, either for reputational purposes or because they truly hope that something will eventually arise out of what currently seems to be nothing, that they will push just about anything through the process, no matter how little promise it seems to offer. They are just that desperate. There are echoes in this situation, according to some former advisors to the FDA, of how the agency behaved during the most deadly years of the AIDS crisis. The FDA was pressured by mostly powerful political actors to approve ineffective drugs to be given to the increasingly desperate and dying AIDS patients because it was politically prudent to do so. Because then it could be claimed that ground was being gained on this issue and that there was hope, even if the approved dead-end paths likely ultimately slowed real progress toward those same goals. It seemed like progress was being made, and that was the whole point. It will likely be some time before we know for sure which way this specific story will go. But for the time being, it would seem that the FDA, as an agency, has been weakened by this perception, if not necessarily reality, that they are in the pockets of either medical world corporate interests or political expediency, neither of which is a good look for an entity that has arguably done a great deal to shape a healthier consumer landscape in the United States and consequently around the world over the years, and which has quite possibly helped end the COVID-19 pandemic much sooner than would have otherwise been possible by granting emergency approval to a small collection of very new, and as it turns out, fortunately, very effective types of vaccine. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future by Elizabeth Colbert. 
I don't want to give away too many of the specifics of this book, because the specifics are kind of the point of it, but in essence, what this book does is explores some of the possibilities and realities that might be associated with some of the tools and approaches that we might end up having to use and take if we are not able to get climate change under control rapidly enough. And increasingly, despite all the growth that's happened, all the progress that's been made, that does remain a likely possibility. And consequently, we may have to do some things that are kind of disturbing to think about, like putting substances into the atmosphere that would help deflect some of the sunlight and thus some of the heat that might otherwise come into the atmosphere and then get trapped here by the greenhouse effect. But these may be things that we will have to consider and refine and experiment with and test for effectiveness just in case and potentially, ideally, I would argue, ahead of time to make sure that we have them in the barrel just in case we need them. Now again, this is not a pleasant thought and these are approaches that I think should be last-ditch efforts, but at the same time, again because of how long we waited to actually act on this on scale, those last-ditch efforts might actually be necessary, and thus it is probably a good idea to make sure they work and figure out how they work and how best they work before we actually have to apply them on scale, if that does in fact prove to be necessary. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Under a White Sky by Elizabeth Colbert. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to my daily news curation newsletter at onesentencenews.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.